0: Amen. Thank you, Lynn. I heard Lynn and Nathan warming up on that song on Friday before Mary Alice Curley's funeral. That was yesterday where she sang that song. It was Mary Alice's wish that Lynn would sing that at her funeral. And I said, that's such a perfect song for Sunday as we talk about grace today. And you've really never heard that song until you've heard it at Celebrate Recovery, right, Eddie? I mean, when you hear it at Celebrate Recovery and you see the men and women in that room nodding their heads saying, yes, that's my story, absolutely. If it wasn't for grace, I would, there's no telling where I would be. And they all just are so deeply moved by that song. And I talked to Eddie this morning about it. He said, that's my story. And the reality is that it's all of our stories. If it wasn't for grace, all of us would be hopelessly lost. So I hope you and your loved ones all had a, a Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about grace today as we continue our series in John, John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, and it has been kind of a strange December here. We, we've, we have had a lot of funerals here, but... Lee Allen does a beautiful prayer that she prayed earlier. Uh, she she said that we as a family of faith grieve with those who grieve, just as Scripture tells us, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And I want to let you know that Evan and Sarah Elmore had a little baby boy last night, which is a wonderful blessing. Uh, little Thomas entered this world uh, last night, and he's healthy, and mom's doing well. So we celebrate uh, with our church members who Uh, are are now parents, which is a whole new kind of Christmas experience. (laughs) So I loved our Christmas Eve service here. That's quickly becoming one of my favorite times to be with you all. And I think we had more than 35, I think my, my wife counted 35 kids in the Christmas play, which is just insane. And I can't believe that uh, Rachel and and her team cast Isaiah, my two-year-old, as young Jesus. They were trying to make a historically accurate representation of when the wise men came. Maybe Jesus was a toddler. We, We think that may be the case according to history. But Isaiah didn't really grasp that concept and he was going around telling all of my relatives that he was going to play baby Jesus in the Christmas play (laughs) as a two and a half year old. That little big didn't quite fit in the manger. Um, It all worked out great though. We, we barely scratched the surface that night. I told you I would preach for nine minutes, and I think I went ten, sorry. Um, but we, we talked about that one verse, John chapter 1, verse 14, one of the all-time greatest verses in the Bible, and, and we just scratched the surface of it. And so we're going to unpack it a little bit more today, but it, it says, the Word became flesh. And you could spend a year on that, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we talked a little bit at Christmas Eve about how God condescended to us, how he came down to our level by putting on flesh and moving into our neighborhood. And we're going to continue this morning to kind of Flesh that verse out, no pun intended tray. Uh, but we're we're going to go to the next three verses as well and finish off the first chapter of John as we move all the way through the rest of John in 2019. So stand with me if you're able to this morning as I read our text from John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know what you may be seated. What words do is they reveal things, right? Words give us information. And Jesus, as the word, the logos, the eternal pre-existent word that was with God and was God, reveals the Father to us as an act of grace. He tells us who the Father is. He shows us God's nature. He shows us God's character. He shows us God's goodness and love. I hope you got some good presents for Christmas this year. You're never too old to get a good Christmas gift. I asked uh, Rachel what she got for Christmas. She said, a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) I said, you really are a grown-up now. That's, uh, That's a fun gift. In Christ, we've been given two gifts that I want to talk about today. That we see here in John 1 in verse 14, we've been given amazing grace and unending truth that both come through Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he revealed the glory of God to our world. And that glory of God is full of grace and truth. This is good news. This is gospel news because we desperately need both of these things in our world, don't we? Tim Keller says that truth without grace is not really truth. And grace without truth is not really grace. We need both of these things working together. You know, love mercy, grace, I love talking about those, I love preaching about those, the Bible's full of that kind of stuff, it's important to talk about, but we can't understand how deep the Father's love for us is if we don't understand the truth about our sin and our brokenness. Grace is not really amazing grace at all unless we realize what we've been rescued from, the, the very pit of, of hell. In his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, Keller says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. The the merciful commitment that God shows us strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. And the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Isn't that Rich, that's a really wonderful truth, that we need both of these things, grace and truth, because if God dealt with us only according to the truth, none of us would survive. We'd be obliterated. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. How does he do that? Doesn't something have to win? Doesn't something have to give, grace or truth? No, God can deal with us with both grace and truth because of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus met all the demands of the law. He fulfilled perfectly all the requirements of the holy law. And now God is free to share the the fullness of his grace with those who trust in Jesus Christ. So grace without truth would be deceitful. And truth without grace would be condemning. Praise God for both of these. Before we dive into these ideas individually of grace and truth, let's look at verse 15 again. My youngest son, Isaiah, has been walking around the house uh, singing, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, but he, he doesn't quite understand the whole song, so he just sings, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, like, stop, Isaiah, we gotta, we gotta teach him the punchline, you know, it's like a broken record is what it sounds like, you know, and as I was listening to him sing this in the car the other day, I was thinking how important it is to get to the punchline that Jesus Christ is born. That's the key to the whole song. He's missing the most important part. I feel like a failure as a pastor father. (laughs) We have that privilege and that joy and indeed command from God himself to go tell it on the highest place we can find that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, has been born, that he's come to rescue us, John reminds us here in verse 15 of the witness of John the Baptist. Back in verse 6, you know, he introduced John the Baptist as a forerunner to Jesus' own ministry. He was the one who was calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that I've been telling you about, everybody. Look. Look at Jesus. Look at Christ. He's the one, even though his ministry started after mine, he's existed before all time and all creation. Therefore, he is greater than me. He is before me, even though I started my earthly ministry before him. His origins are from of old, just like the prophet Micah told us. So we're going to see this theme throughout John of bearing witness To Christ, all of us, not just John the Baptist, he was the first one to do it. But now we're going to see that we have a part to play in that witness theme as well. We all get to have a ministry like John the Baptist, and that we have that privilege of pointing to Christ, pointing others to Jesus and saying, this is the one. He's the one who makes sense out of your life. He's the one who brings meaning and purpose into your whole world if only you'll trust Him and follow Him as Lord and Savior and Master of your heart and your life. And last week I mentioned that the word true or or truth is is a theme in John as well. You're going to see that as we go through John. But when it says truth, the, the word isn't really about veracity so much as authenticity, right? Truth is not just about some facts or getting the correct answer. Truth in in John and in the Bible is about getting an accurate picture of reality, seeing kind of behind the veil of this world and getting it right at what really is going on in our world and in our lives. And then we finally get to grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is kind of one of those church words that we kind of use a lot in church, but we don't really stop to think about what grace means. The, the way that, you know, scholars de- describe grace is as unmerited favor. The, the word in Greek is charis, and it's usually defined as undeserved love or unearned favor. But that's still kind of a cold, abstract way of, of dealing with it. I once heard uh, someone explain grace and mercy in this kind of way, and I'll, I'll use a story from my own life to, to illustrate it. But when I was 16, I'd just gotten my, uh, my license, and it was about two weeks after I'd gotten my license when I got my first ticket. <laughs> I was driving on Highway 96, old Highway 96 in Franklin before West Haven was there, and some of you know where I'm talking about. It's straight, and it's flat, and it's easy to just fly down that stretch of road. And I was trying to make it home in time for curfew. I was leaving a buddy's house, and I knew I had about five minutes to get across Franklin. So I was hauling down uh, old Highway 96, and I saw headlights coming towards me this way. I I thought in my 16-year-old logic, I said, well, even if that was an officer of the law, there's nothing he could do, because I'm going this way and he's going that way. And right about as I made that decision, I'm gonna keep speeding. Uh, I saw blue lights come on uh, right next to me. And I heard the screeching of his car and I looked in my mirror and he did like a Dukes of Hazard 180 on the highway and came flying up right behind me and I was scared. I was freaking out, never been pulled over, never been driving, you know, only driven at night like four times in my life at this point. And I'm getting my papers together, trying to find my registration and insurance and all that stuff. And I'm looking out my driver's side window, and I hear a knock on the other side, on the passenger side. And I about jumped out of my seat, and the officer had a flashlight, and, and he said, Son, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, No, sir. And he said, is there any reason for you to be going that fast? No, sir. Have you been drinking? No, sir. <laughs> you know, all these questions that I'm just scared to death. And he said, give me your license registration. I said, yes, sir. Gave them to him. And he's gone for what felt like an eternity. And when he came back to my car, I was ready for this massive fine or ticket or go to jail or I didn't know what was <laughs> going to happen to me. And he, he calmed down and he said, son, you need to drive slower. I said, okay. He said, you get home safely and drive slower. And he gave me my license back, my registration back, and that was it. And I sat in my car until he left, and I said, thank you, God. (laughs) That was mercy. That was an act of mercy. When I deserved punishment for my wrong actions, he let me go. That's an act of mercy. Grace would have been if not only had he let me go, but he'd also given me $1,000 cash. (laughs) Grace is a step further. Grace is a gift when you deserve punishment. Grace is getting favor when what you deserve is punishment. Receiving something good when you deserve something bad. But honestly, in in truth, a thousand dollars cash or a million dollars cash or a gajillion dollars cash doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the grace that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. An undeserved gift might be a nice surprise, but the grace of God as expressed through Jesus changes everything. It's powerful, it's effective, it's forceful. Skip Ryan, he's a, a pastor that I listened to, a Presbyterian pastor. He says, what is grace? It's a sprinkling. Is it, is it a sprinkling of fairy dust, a warm, happy feeling? A lot of preachers treat it that way. No. Grace is a power, he says, that lifts you out of the domain of darkness and transfers you into the domain of light. Grace is God's magnificent power power erupting in your heart and soul by his own intervention so that you move from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. Grace is power that is embodied in a person. I love that. Three times he uses the word power to describe grace. And since grace is embodied in a person, in Jesus Christ, it cannot be exhausted. You know, advertising is is built on on getting us to buy into this idea of scarcity, that there's not enough of stuff and you've got to get it while you can, right? And there's this myth of scarcity and, you know, economics would, would teach us that, you know, there's supply and demand chains and those kinds of things that I don't understand very much about, that our options are limited. But in verse 16 here, John says, from his fullness from Christ's fullness we have all received grace upon grace grace upon grace upon grace the idea here is like a fountain that just overflows continually with grace never ending and where have we received these presence of grace and truth from from the fullness of God that was in Christ Jesus That's what verse 16 says. The fullness of Christ is the source of that never-ending grace and truth. In Colossians chapter two, when Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, in verse nine, he says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God's deity bodily, physically dwelt in the person of Christ Jesus. The fullness of God. The omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful, never-ending God. You probably have heard before, John, 1 John 4, 8, God is what? Love. Yes, God is love. But the word for love that's used in the New Testament here is agape. And agape is gift love. It's never-ending gift. It's always outward-focused, centrifugally giving all the time, outward source of grace and truth that flows from God to us constantly. God's fullness gives and gives and gives in a kind of way that never runs out, never stops to refill or rest or take a break. Because his fullness is is more full than anything you could ever imagine. God's fullness never empties, it never runs out, it's never exhausted. That fullness of God, that abundantly overflowing grace, dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. Grace is not, therefore, some kind of abstract love, it's not some warm, gooey feeling either. It's as Skip Ryan says, it's a power that's embodied in a person. I love the way Martin Luther talks about grace. You know, the great reformer, uh, someone was telling me just yesterday that they'd just been to the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. How many of y'all have seen that before? And they said it really is opulent. It really is nice. And I said, yeah, they sold a lot of indulgences to build that. That's kind of the whole Reformation impetus began with this idea of raising funds to get somebody out of purgatory. Martin Luther said, no, it's all about grace. He says, this spring of grace is inexhaustible. It's full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light, and could indeed light up 10 worlds, and just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it. I thought about our Christmas Eve service, lighting one candle from the Christ candle. Just as one learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has. I think about Dr. Wade Rowett over here who's taught seminary for many, many years. How many thousands of students and pastors that are now Giving what he has given to them, and that only increases what he has. The the more he has, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. That's rich, isn't it? There's no law of scarcity. There's no economic principles of supply and demand that apply to God's grace. Some of you may have already heard this story of uh, the power of grace. In the 17th century in England, a young boy was born into a Christian home. And for the first six years of his life, his godly parents taught him the truths of Scripture and and doctrine. And they, they shared the gospel with him. And he was dearly loved Sadly, though, his parents died when he was six and the orphan boy went to live with his relatives and he was actually mistreated and abused and ridiculed for his interest in Christ. The orphan couldn't tolerate that situation, and though he was still a boy, he fled and joined the Royal Navy. In the Navy, the boy's life went downhill quickly. He became known as a brawler, he was whipped many times, he participated in the keel hauling of some of his shipmates, you know, that's where they drag a guy under the boat, he did that often. Finally, while he was still young, he deserted the Royal Navy and fled to Africa, where he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader, and there his life reached its lowest point. There were times where he actually ate off the floor on his hands and knees just in order to survive. And then he escaped the the chains of uh, the shipmate, the, the captain who was a slave trader, and he got employed by another slave trader as a first mate on his ship. But the young man's pattern of life had become desperately depraved. He once stole the ship's whiskey and got so drunk that he fell overboard and he was close to drowning when one of his shipmates, the only way he could save him was to actually harpoon him Uh, in the water and pull him back on board. And for the rest of his life, he had a horrible scar up and down his side. His life couldn't get much lower. So finally, in the middle of a a great storm off the coast of Scotland, and after days and days of of bailing water out of the boat, the, the young man began to reflect on the Bible verses that he had learned as a young boy. Parents of small children never underestimate the power of teaching scripture to your young children. He began to ruminate on those Bible verses that he had learned as a a young child and he was miraculously converted to Jesus Christ. The new life he found, he later wrote about in these famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And you know that this young man, John Newton, went on to become one of the greatest preachers of the entire 17th century, all because of the powerful, amazing grace of God. So let me just give us three applications here to to close. Two of these are kind of minor and one's pretty major. First, the uh, you know, the grace of God offered in, in Christ changes who we are from the inside out. It, it changes our very being. So here's three things that we should be in light of, of God's great grace. First, we should be a witness to Christ. We're reminded of that here in verse 15. Like John the Baptist, we, we should be pointing to the one who ranks ahead of all of us as the supreme good, as the ultimate greatest good in all of the cosmos, the Savior who takes away our sins and gives us that right to become children of God. Second, we should be aware of the truth that that Christ reveals to us that we are desperately sick and we're in need of a cure. I had a professor in seminary who came to Christ after battling alcoholism for years and He woke up one morning crammed into the floorboard of the backseat of his car, crying out for rescue. He finally reached that point of desperation, and he always told us, he said, you don't need to reach rock bottom like I did. In fact, you're already there apart from Christ. You know, in 1952, a prominent uh, New York Presbyterian pastor named Norman Vincent Peale published a very popular book, The Power of Positive Thinking. It sold over 5 million copies, and his thesis was essentially that you can kind of lie to yourself until you believe the lie. (laughs) It remains a popular philosophy today. But a, a professor of applied Christianity at Union Theological Seminary in New York, one of my favorite writers, Reinhold Niebuhr, wrote about the power of positive thinking. He said, this cult is dangerous. Anything which corrupts the gospel hurts Christianity, and it hurts people too. It helps them to feel good while they're evading the real issues of life. A few years later, there's another self-help book published in the late 60s called I'm Okay, what? You're You're Okay. Very popular. Thomas Harris wrote it, sold over 15 million copies Again, the goal of this book is to get people to understand that we all are really okay as long as you get years and years of professional therapy. That was his conclusion, that we all need very expensive therapy. I think we all know deep down the truth that there's something about us that is not okay. That we are broken. That we are deeply flawed. We long for redemption. Our bones ache for what was lost in the garden all those years ago when Adam and Eve plunged the world into death and darkness. When Jesus showed up on earth, he revealed the truth that the law has shown us all along that we're incapable on our own of being right with God. We need an intermediary, we need a savior. Christ alone revealed the reality of God's standard of holiness. He lived a perfect life among us. And we need to know that truth of God's holiness and of our brokenness. Finally, here's the big one. Be transformed by the power of grace. If you truly have experienced the saving grace of God by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it changes you. In fact, the Bible says that you've been born again. You have a new birth. You are indeed a new creation. Behold, the old has gone. The new has come. You receive the Holy Spirit inside of you and he cultivates within you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in ever-increasing measure. You know, one of my, my favorite things I've done the last few years, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's really good and beneficial for me, is around this time of year at New Year's, I write down those nine fruits of the Spirit, and I give myself a little self-evaluation. Nathan, where did you grow in these areas, or, or where do you need to grow? Where have you regressed, maybe? Are you less Patient now that you drive in Nashville traffic every day <laughs> Are you less patient now that you have another toddler running around the house? <laughs> Are you gentle with your wife? Are you gentle with your children with your congregants? Are you growing in peace? Are you more joyful than you were a year ago in? 2018 did you become someone who's more faithful and more trusting in God more willing to take great risks? for God because of your faith? Am I growing in the grace of God? Am I being transformed more and more into the person that God made me to be? Some of you here may just feel like you're spinning your wheels, like you're running your race but losing. Uh, Maybe you've been resisting the Holy Spirit And now you realize that it's time to allow God's amazing grace in and to do what only it can do in that work of transformation. In 2019, I, I pray that the Lord will allow each of us to be a faithful witness, that we will point the world to Jesus Christ. I also pray that we are aware of the reality of our situation, that we are hopelessly lost apart from the sovereign grace of Christ. And I hope that we are more radically transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and that it changes us into the people that God made us to be. In 2019, we're really gonna focus on discipleship here at Woodmont. If you're not in a small group right now, I encourage you, get plugged in. We have amazing small groups here. We have shepherds, really, they're they're like little churches within the church. And we have pastors who've been shepherding these little flocks, and there's a whole list of them at the, uh, the visitor center at the, the north entrance and the south entrance. Pick one up, get plugged in, try some different ones. It's okay to jump around from class to class, but you need to be in a small group if you're going to grow in Christ. You need to be in God's Word. If you're not actively reading the Bible right now, make a commitment. 2019 is your year. I have a little checklist. I'm using a new Bible reading plan. I'm going to check it off each day. I like to check things off my list. Each day when I finish my four readings, I'm going to check them off, right? I've I've got a new discipleship group that I'm going to be working with. I, I want us all to really commit to grow in grace, and that's something that, again, it's not through human effort. It sounds like I'm making it about that. It's about allowing God's grace to enter into your heart and to make you new from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the grace and truth that you've revealed to us through Jesus Christ. You did not remain hidden from us, but you showed us your goodness, that never-ending fountain of grace and truth that was embodied in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incarnation that at Christmas that you took on flesh in order to show us your never-ending grace and truth. God, I pray that 2019 would be a year where we grow in grace. I pray that we would look back in 2020 at what an amazingly transformative year 2019 was. I pray that it would be the beginning of a journey of discipleship where this church really gets serious about following you as Lord of our lives. I pray that as we follow you, you would help us to become more like you, that we would be conformed to your image as we follow behind you. God, we thank you for the grace and truth that you've freely bestowed on us. I pray that we, as Lee Ellen prayed earlier, would be gracious people now who would treat others not as they deserve, but as we've been treated with the amazing grace of God. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your high and your holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, of course. And it says something different, I think, in your, your bulletin. But I asked Gene, do you know Amazing Grace? He said, yeah, I've heard it. Uh, so we're going to sing. Amazing grace, if you need to make a commitment to Jesus today, if you feel like the Holy Spirit's just tugging on your heart and you need to talk to me about it, I invite you to come forward right now and just talk about what the Lord's doing in your life. Maybe you've never received Jesus as Lord and you're ready to make that commitment of of becoming born again and brand new from the inside out. I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you feel like 2019 is your year. 2019 is gonna be a year of transformation in your life and you just feel that God's doing something in you and you wanna be a part of it. This church is not perfect. We are deeply flawed as, as much as I am as anybody and Celebrate Recovery will teach you that we all have our hurts, habits, and hangups, right? But we can do life together as a family of faith and that's what Woodmont is and, and Woodmont does a good job of being a family of faith. We got all generations, we got births, we have deaths. It's all part of being a family. And whatever it is, if you want to come up here and just pray at the altar, I want to invite Trey, if you'll come up here and stand, and Anna, if you'll come up here too, if you'll just, if you want to pray with Anna, uh, you know, these are godly people that uh, I know and and love and trust. If you just want to pray with somebody, uh, they'll be here to pray with you as well. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound.